There we go. Yeah. Yeah, give us that one as well. That would be great. Super. There we go. Um, good to see you this morning. So it is really good. Um, Lucy is great. Anybody that knows Lucy, oh, yeah. you already you already know that. Um, if, if, Rick, you, if Rick says it, it must be true. It must be true. Isn't that right? <laughs> I would never lie. I would never lie. So, um, uh, yeah, if you haven't, uh, we are so excited about you getting the opportunity, one, to, to hear Lucy speak, but just to, to be in the room with us and get a chat with her afterwards. She's um, great. Um, I have the, the privilege of, alongside your, your husband, um, uh, Ross, as well, we facilitate the 24-7 um, uh, cohort. Um, the, uh, sorry, let me... Let me rephrase that one a wee bit. Um, the Leadership Pathway, um, alongside Susie and Cheryl. So there's four of us that are involved in that. So our lives are all overlapping, um, which is is wonderful. There is legacy as well. We've, Phil's, Phil's making the most of being able to sit back there, but we'll point him out every now and then. Okay, Remember, you do talk to him. Whenever he even needs to the break, you do talk to him. Okay, And we've got... Um, sort of legacy of friendship going on with your parents, with Paul and Priscilla Reid. Um, so it's just, it's great to have you here. Um, Lucy is the, the National Director of 24-7 Prayer across Ireland, is holding that role. We'll hear a little bit about what that's looking like at the moment. And it's just great to have you here. It's Lucy. lovely so to it be is. here. It's really good. So give us, could you give us just a little whistle stop tour of, of your life oh, wow. really quickly? <laughs> yeah. Can you do, how, how do you do that in 30 seconds? Well, you might not be able to tell from my accent, but I grew up in Belfast. Um, I say that because I've actually now lived longer in Dublin, so I don't know. I don't even know what I sound like anymore. My children assure me that I still sound like I'm from Northern Ireland, um, especially when I get cross with them. So yeah, I grew up down the road in Belfast. It <laughs> uh, gets a little bit stronger. And, um, and uh, moved to Dublin when I was 18 to study um, and uh, to find a good old southern man, and I did, and, uh, and I never left. Uh, so as Rick said, married to Ross, we've been married for 19 years, uh, just a couple of weeks ago there. And uh, yeah, and we are, have three girls, uh, 14, 11, and seven. So I'd say my primary job is basically a PA and a taxi driver at this <laughs> stage. Um, but as Rick said, I also work uh, for 24-7, and Ross and I are also part of a team that helps lead a community that's part of the Tabar or Hubber, depending on where you're from, uh, network, <laughs> and uh, uh, and so we meet in uh, near where we live in Dublin. Uh, we have a community there called Eden Collective, and uh, it's privileged to be able to help shepherd and steward that as well. So those are some of the things. So there's lots going on in in life. Uh, tell us a little bit more specifically about the the role and maybe some of the stuff that's coming up within. 24 7 sure. and over this next year as well yes so uh, about a year and a half ago i stepped into the enormous shoes of uh your very own alan emerson uh, and sort of taking on that role of leading 24 7 in ireland and um i guess going way back um next year we celebrate 25 years of 24 7 prayer across the globe and uh, and actually for me my journey with 24 7 started way back at the beginning and so as that prayer movement exploded uh, in the south coast of england i was heading off to university um, and i got sort of caught up in that um just that passion and excitement for prayer. And, uh, and throughout my university years really was formative for me in just shaping a heart for prayer and centering my own life, but also being a part of 
just shaping rhythms of prayer in the different communities that I was a part of. And I went on the very first missions trip that 24-7 Prayer hosted, one of the craziest experiences of my own life, headed off to Russia uh, as part of a team there. And so sort of fast forward all these years later, um, as it became obvious that as people like Al and Tash had um, had really led the movement for many years, um, and really as a gift from this church in particular, um, it was time to kind of put a little bit more bones on the structure, and um, and so I stepped into the role, and um, I, it's my privilege and my joy that I just get to see people discover prayer again, and to fall in love with prayer. You know, if we're being really honest, prayer's not always the easiest thing. It's not always the most exciting thing, even in the life of our churches. Um, and so uh, in 24-7, our heart is simply to, to see people fall in love with prayer, and to discover a life of prayer, um, not just in their churches, but in their own lives as well. And so 24-7's always been about prayer rooms, and that's still what we're about. And uh, the joy of seeing churches make the decision to center uh, their own communities on on prayer that that I suppose those words of Jesus apart from me you can do nothing and there's that sense that when we 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 have a prayer room at the heart of who we are and what we do it's we're making a statement about that aren't we and um we all know we don't need a room to pray in but there's there's something about the prayer room there's something about um, creating a space of encounter um, and a shared space that even though we, we use it and we interact with it in different ways, there's something as a community about holding a shared space of prayer. Um, and what we see is that young and old together encounter Jesus um, and discover that prayer doesn't have to be boring, that it can be creative and that can be exciting, but most of all, it allows us to encounter Jesus. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago down in Bangor, um, a church hosted a prayer room and a mum told the story of going into it with her seven-year-old son. Um, and on the way home in the car, she noticed that he was crying. And she said, what's wrong? So, you know, are you okay? And he said, mum, it's okay. These are happy tears because Jesus was in that room. And he said, and I want my daddy, who wasn't a Christian, I want my daddy to get into that room so he can feel it too. And so there's something really special about those spaces. And so I love the fact we get to encourage those and help resource them and champion them. Um, and then... Um, what we're seeing, and, and I think what's particularly exciting for me at the minute, is that, that that sort of experience of the prayer room, of the of encountering God, we're, we're taking those into our schools across the nation. And so prayer spaces in schools is something that we are really investing in. And over the last year, hundreds of young people have had the opportunity in their own school community to enter into a prayer space um, and to meet with Jesus. Um, and that's been so exciting. Um, loads of other things. I think what's happening as well is that across Ireland, um, I think something happened in COVID about us learning about how much we need one another. And something's happening about around prayer is such a great unifier. And what we're seeing in, right across Ireland, I would say, is this heart to come together to pray. And we know from history that no move of God happens without prayer. And I am just seeing increasingly that hunger for God to come and to move right across our nation. And, and in doing so, God's calling is his people to come together, to pray together, to seek him together. And so that's been really exciting as well. And finally, one of the great joys of my, my last year has been partnering with Robbie and Ryan and other folks um, to, uh, to raise up another generation of prayers. Um, and so Signal Fires is just a, an opportunity for us to invite young people into a space where they too can encounter Jesus and um, discover a heart for prayer. And it's been the best part of that has been being able to be the old person at the back of the room, standing <laughs> and watching young men and women like Robbie and Ryan and others, um, you know, 
just go after their, you know, the young people in front of them and, um, and, and lead in that way. So that's been a real privilege as well. There's loads going on. Yeah. It's very exciting. We'll just talk, before we move into how we can get involved, yes. um, obviously Shelley and Francis that have been about with us have been yes. down and in, in looking with you guys and closely yeah. over it. So it's just to put that connection into your head as well of, of the overlapping and the, the, the networking and the interconnection of the kingdom of God is that um, both, both Lucy and Ross and the community that's forming around there um, are all involved with what's going on and, and looking. So like, God is so good, how he weaves all of these journeys together. How can we get involved in this, Lucy, as a church, as individuals? What, 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 yeah, what can we do? Yeah, well, I think as we're sensing that heart for prayer and that, that hunger, I mean, Nua is another expression of that hunger for the next great awakening of God in this land. Um, we've really sensed God saying to us that to, to call a year of prayer next year. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? We our, our real heart's desire is that we would have 365 days, 24 hours of prayer right throughout the year. Um, and we aren't going to be able to do that by ourselves. We're a little teeny tiny team. And so we are calling the church um, to join us in that journey. And so that will look like lots of different ways to engage and to connect. And we are asking churches to consider how they can, uh, you know, shape that into the, their calendar and, and commit themselves to a, a periods of, of nonstop prayer together. Um, I know there's a legacy of prayer in this community, and so it's not hard for me to ask you guys to pray because that's what you do. You're a praying church. Um, and so we also are really excited about opportunities to be able to, to gather corporately throughout the year, to see our young people praying in lots of different ways. And so that is really what we're holding at the minute and in our hearts, and we are looking to partner with you as we do that, um, both as individuals, as you shape your, your rhythms of prayer in your own life around what God's doing in this nation and seeking him for the nation, um, and then also as a church community. Um, and so we're excited to come alongside you and, and many other churches across Ireland to be able to partner to do that. Um, and then I guess the other thing that Rick mentioned, and I meant to mention it, is that uh, we, have, we are in this exciting new journey of, uh, of developing this centre down in the west of Dublin, uh, retreat centre, shaping kind of rid housing a, a house of prayer and then shaping rhythms of, of hospitality and community and um, but also really trying to promote uh, spiritual formation and retreat and um, and so we'd love you to pray for us in this journey there's a real opportunity for this center to become a real hub for for prayer um, at the heart of uh, of what god's doing in ireland um, and and there's something really lovely about it um for me being a northerner now living in the south and um, you know i it I don't know how many of you have spent much time in the South, but when you come to Northern Ireland, there's such a great richness and wealth of what God, of churches and the life of you know churches and what God's doing. Um, and God is moving in the South in beautiful ways as well. But um, but often we're a little bit starved of resources, um, and so there's something really beautiful about this gift to be able to have this in the South of Ireland and to see what God could do right across the land. Um, and so we'd love you to just partner with us in praying for that and um, that God would bless it that he would grow it um, and that we would have you know just a real wisdom as to how we develop and uh, explore that yeah we had the the leadership pathway guys down with you a few weeks ago and it is a beautiful space and also not only physical space but also the space that they're creating for people to go to so it is really important and um, what they're sort of contending um, for which is it, which is really um, powerful. We just want to remind you as well of the, the prophetic word that we shared to you on the back of one of the Tabar leaders of the scales across Ireland and of the intentionality of 
of, of his skills needing to be weighted um, towards the south um, in, in this season. So I want to remind you Amen. of that again. Um, Lucy, we are just excited to let you, you, you add it. Can I pray for you? <laughs> yes, Can please. I pray for you? Do, um, stretch out your hand. Um, let, let's just pray for Lucy as she speaks, but let's pray for, for Lucy in this role. Let's celebrate all that God has called her into. And even in this moment for a fresh anointing of what he's, uh, of the mantle that he's placed upon her and um, for this time of wanting to awaken the church and um, to, to seek the face of God, to call out to him night and day prayer. And um, we need fresh imagination for this. So we are excited and we, we want to pray for Lucy in, in this role. So God, we just say, would you please rest upon Lucy again for everything for this morning, but beyond that. God, for the role that she is is holding and carrying for the assignment that you have given to her and for this season, we pray a fresh anointing upon her. And God, we ask you for Ross and for the girls, may you um, just be with them even this morning as they gather in Dublin. May they know your blessing with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Rick. Um, it's really lovely to be with you. It's always nice to come up north again. That is a familiar road. I was on the road bright and early this morning. Um, so it, and it, it's, um, there's, there's certain churches in the life of 24-7 prayer that are really important and really significant. And, um, and Emmanuel has always been an incredible gift to the movement in Ireland. So it's my privilege to get to come and just be a part of what you guys are doing um, and to cheer you on as well and encourage you. Um, I'm delighted that I get to be a part of this post-resurrection encounter series. Um, I love these stories. Um, there's something about them. I think there's something beautifully human about them, isn't there? They involve grief and fear and doubt and shame and disappointment and all those really great human emotions. And, uh, and what's so striking about them, isn't it, that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's resurrected you know, the one thing that could put an end to any question of his power. But instead of heading to Rome to claim his authority, he seeks out his friends, doesn't he? He seeks out his friends who are doubting to reassure them, those who are fearful to give them his peace, and he walks with them and he talks with them until they can recognize that it's him. So they encounter him and they can believe him and learn to follow him in the here and the now. It's this invitation to understand what resurrection life really looks like. And I don't know about you, but I'm always struck by resurrection and Easter. And we celebrate it with, and we should, with all its fanfare and all its celebration. But actually, sometimes in the aftermath, there's something of the question of what does that really mean for me? in my life because of course we live in the heat in the now and the not yet so you know resurrection is here and now but the reality of our lives sometimes causes us to ask what does it really mean how does this become real in my life and I think that's what these stories are about showing us you know Jesus was alive resurrection was theirs but the disciples still had to reckon with some of their old wounds and hurts and this is what Jesus is doing he's showing us that the resurrection it moves out to meet us and it interacts with us in our everyday life. And so we come to the end of John's gospel in John 21. And uh, we have this interaction in John 21 with seven, it tells us seven of the disciples and Jesus on the beach. Um, and it finishes with this 
intimate exchange between Peter and Jesus that we're going to look at today. And it's sort of like, at, you know, we've gotten to the end of John 20, and Jesus has already commissioned the disciples, hasn't he? He's sent them in the way the Father has sent him. But we get to John 21, and there's almost like this sense that there's just some unfinished business with Peter. And so the chapter begins, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to give you a little a context before we read this interaction between Peter and Jesus. And it begins with the disciples on the shores of Galilee, and Peter tells the others that he's going fishing, and so they head out with him, and they catch nothing. It must have been a long night. And uh, before the dawn breaks, Jesus is on the shore, and he calls out to them, and of course, the, the theme of these resurrection encounters, they don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. And he yells out to them from the shore, throw your nets on the other side. And in doing so, they proceed to catch more fish, it tells us, than they could manage to draw in. And even though the nets are heavy and weighed down with all the fish they've caught, they don't even tear. And back on the beach, Jesus is waiting the fire is lit and he's cooking breakfast for the disciples who've been out all night. And as they approach the shore, it finally dawns on them who it is. They realize it's Jesus. And this is the conversation that takes place between Jesus and Peter. So picking it up in John 21, verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said this to him, follow me. This chapter is full of allusions to earlier parts of John's gospel. There's all these little nods backwards. And when the gospel writers do this, it's worth paying attention. I, I love when these are here because there's something that the writer is trying to draw our attention to. He's trying to help us understand what's going on in this moment. It's a bit like Mary in the garden in John 20, and she's in the garden and she's talking to someone she thinks is the gardener, and John's trying to bring us back to the creation moment, to invite us into a new creation moment. And so what's happening here in this particular chapter? Well, Peter has returned to a very familiar place. The disciples have made the journey from Jerusalem back to Galilee, and this is a place where they've been before. They've been here with Jesus many times. They've been with the crowds listening. They've witnessed the good news of the kingdom coming. They've participated with Jesus. This is where they've been with him as his disciples. And what are they doing now? Well, in the aftermath of all that's happened, they're going fishing. 
maybe it was just, I just want to go fishing, just something to do, to keep busy, to ignore some of the disappointment and to try and move on. But it's hard not to remember the emotional roller coaster that Peter's been on. If we think back to his actions in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and he drew his sword, and he chops off the guy's ear, and then he finds himself in the courtyard in the middle of the night around a fire, denying being one of Jesus' disciples. And after all of that, he witnesses the public execution of the one he'd given it all to follow, to the one he loved. It was a pretty traumatic couple of days. And so we can only assume what Peter has feeling since that scene in the courtyard in the middle of the night around the fire where he denied not once but three times that he was one of Jesus' disciples. And at the end of the scene, he weeps. I can only assume as the feelings of regret and disappointment and shame set in. And let's assume it's been hard to shake some of those feelings off. And so we find Peter here at this moment, and he's gone back to the thing that he'd left behind to follow Jesus. And even then, it's not working. He catches nothing. The thing that Peter thought he could master, I wonder, does it speak to us about what's happening in Peter's own heart and soul? He is empty within And with everything that's happened, it's as though Peter believes he's no longer able to be called a disciple. And so he goes back to what he knows. So Peter thought not just that he'd failed the relationship, but that he'd sacrificed his calling. And even though Jesus has just commissioned them again, it's like Peter has counted himself out. I don't know about you, but in my experience, shame has a way of doing this to us. It doesn't just make us feel bad. It eats away at our identity and we forget who we are. We feel disqualified, excluded, even isolated. Brene Brown is one of the great studiers of shame. And she says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced done or fail to do makes us unworthy of connection and I can only imagine that this is a little bit of what Peter is experiencing and maybe you can relate to this today maybe you're carrying a sense of shame and you find yourself busying yourself with something else but it isn't the thing that God's called you to do because somewhere along the line because of the extent of your shame or a sense of failure or having messed it up We've believed the lie that we aren't really worthy of a calling. And so this scene plays out before us, Jesus on the shore, to not only restore Peter to relationship, but to remind him who he really is, one of his disciples, called to follow Jesus and his way in the world, no matter how far Peter thinks he's deviated from it. And, you know, before they've even spoken with each other, Jesus is already speaking from the shore. We have this powerful image of a net so heavy with fish that they can barely haul it into the boat. And you know that little word, haul or draw? It's the same word that's used throughout the gospel to indicate the Father and the Son drawing people to them. It's an echo of Peter's original calling 
to be a fisher of people. It's an image of what's ahead of them as they partner with Jesus in his mission. This is still the call on your life, Peter. And so even before Peter has recognized the stranger on the beach who's shouting instructions at them, the words of Jesus that I've already quoted this morning from John 15, apart from me, Peter, you can do nothing, seem to be ringing out. Sorry, my iPad's deciding to um, jump around here. Jesus wants to draw Peter back into relationship and do a dependence on him. He wants him to understand that he hasn't failed on his calling. Jesus wants him to remember that apart from him, he can do absolutely nothing. And I think Jesus is being intentional here. Despite Peter thinking that he's totally blown it, he is being gently and slowly invited back to the way of Jesus. And so they approach the beach. I assume pretty elated with their catch. And Peter suddenly recognizes him. And in true Peter style, he gets a little bit overexcited, doesn't he? He jumps out of the boat. He gets into the water. He storms towards him. He leaves his mates to do the rest of the work. Um, and, uh, and he gets there and Jesus is waiting and the fire is lit and the breakfast is cooking. And after his initial enthusiasm, I wonder, did the fire stop him in his tracks? The smell of the charcoal. You see, this is another one of those nods that the writer's giving us because the only other time in the gospel that this word for fire, for charcoal is used, it's back in the courtyard. It's back in that moment for Peter. And so we're being brought back to that moment, the scene of Peter's denial of Jesus, what felt like a defining moment for Peter, and the writer wants us to remember it. And so I can't help but wonder, was Peter reminded too? Reminded of the very thing, the reason that he was out on the boat fishing, his shame. And suddenly here he is face to face with Jesus. At least if he'd stayed dead, he would have only had to face himself. And I wonder... Is Peter suddenly aware that there's a hard conversation that needs to be had? And any of us have experienced that feeling of shame or failure, um, especially if we feel like we've let somebody down. I just wonder, is Peter just waiting for Jesus to correct him and to scold him and to make him feel even worse if it was even possible? But rather than it be something to fear, Jesus is seeking Peter out as he always does so beautifully to bring him from disorientation to reorientation, to remind him about who he really is. Because, of course, all the while on the sea, Jesus has been trying to remind them about their mission and what he's called them to, but he's not finished. Jesus is intent on coming after Peter's shame. He is determined to get to Peter's heart, the thing that matters the most. And so we read in the text three times, he asks Peter the question, do you love me? And three times it's matched with Peter's affirmation of his love. One of the early church fathers writes, the remedy of a triple confession applied to the wound of a triple denial. And it's like without even mentioning it, Jesus is acknowledging the three times Peter denied him. He recreates the scene. So much so that Peter gets annoyed at Jesus I have a husband, so I understand the irritation of being asked the same question three times, the same question repeatedly. But I wonder for Peter, 
is it a painful moment having to revisit this scene? And yet Jesus isn't trying to trap Peter in condemnation. He's trying to free him from it. And Jesus doesn't condemn us in the past. He doesn't ignore it either. He acknowledges it like he does subtly with Peter and our old self. But he invites us into the present moment. Look at the question he asks. Do you love me? He doesn't ask him about the past. He doesn't go over old ground. He doesn't interrogate him as to why. He asks him about his heart in the present. Do you love me more than these? What's the more than these? Truth is, we don't really know exactly. But the important part of the question is, do you love me more than? All he needs is our hearts to be completely his. And repentance is that act, isn't it, of returning to our first love. And Jesus is simply inviting Peter to return to his first love. I think if I'd been asking the question, it had been a terribly needy question. Do you love me, Peter? But this is Jesus. And I don't think Jesus is in any doubt of Peter's love for him. I don't think Jesus needed Peter to feed his ego or to affirm him. I don't think Jesus is feeling insecure because Peter denied him. He wanted to remind Peter that he isn't defined by that moment, but what's in his heart. Jesus wants Peter to know he still believes in him. Do you know when I watch this, when I read this and I look at this interaction, it really challenges me as a parent and as a leader. You know, in a culture of command and control and telling people what to do and in a culture where so often fear is used as a tool, Jesus is so refreshing. You know, I think about how I would have reacted and how easy it would have been to have said, what did you do it for? Did you not think? I thought you were better than that. But no, Jesus invites Peter into a conversation. And he says, let's focus on who you really are. And for those of us who are beating ourselves up for something that we did or said, or even for something that was said or done to us, it doesn't mean that somewhere down the line there'll be a need to ask for forgiveness or seek forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't let it define us. Do you love me? Show me what's in your heart. I still believe in you. And Jesus had come to do for Peter what he longs to do for each of us. He'd come to remove Peter's shame. That sense of feeling unworthy and disqualified. And Peter isn't disqualified. Jesus recommissions him. And it reminds us that restoration doesn't just look like forgiveness and being loved, but by being called by him. That being a disciple of Jesus means participating fully in his mission. And so the most remarkable thing about this story is that by way of forgiveness, Jesus gives Peter a job to do. You know, often our repentance is revealed more by what we do than what we say. And so when Peter professes his love, Jesus doesn't just say, okay, great. He says, all right then, feed my lambs. Look after my sheep. Feed my sheep. What are you going to do with the love you have for me? And so Jesus, who initially gave Peter his identity as a fisher of people, now gives Peter the identity of a shepherd. Feed my sheep. It's almost like the fish that they've hauled onto the beach will become the sheep 
who need to be cared for. And Peter will feed Jesus' sheep and follow him as the great shepherd all the way to the cross, just as Jesus predicted in verse 18. And the good news of the resurrection is simply this. Failure or shame doesn't disqualify us. After the resurrection, Jesus comes back to Peter and all his failed disciples, and instead of bringing up their mistakes, he sends them on mission, on his mission. Who does that? But that's the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom. Rich Valotis says, in the kingdom of God, our mistakes don't make us unusable. It's through our mistakes that God demonstrates his incomparable grace in our lives. We've all been there. We'll have those moments. It's so easy to do it, to disqualify ourselves. God couldn't possibly use me now because you can fill in the blank. How many of us have felt that and experienced it? And yet Jesus' words in verse 19 remind us of the invitation to come away from guilt and shame into the wide open space of discipleship. Follow me. Don't give up. Let's keep on going. I still believe in you. There's a place for you here. And Peter's story, I think we've so much to learn from Peter. Do you know what strikes me is just how much it tells us about what discipleship looks like? Yes, we can have a dramatic conversion, but the truth is salvation takes time. Discipleship takes time. It's a bit of a relief, to be honest. Because how many occasions have we walked with Peter through the Gospels where he's learning to walk with Jesus in the way of Jesus and then he stumbles and he's not quite sure what he's doing. And then right, you know, right before Jesus dies, we find him in the garden departing so far away from the way of Jesus. And in the courtyard and he finally says, I am not one of his. And yet here we are on the beach with Jesus. And even though Peter has given up on himself, Jesus has not given up on him. Okay, let's try and learn it again. It's a beautiful interaction. Rodney Reeves says, slowly, daily, Jesus converts his disciples to his way of thinking, his way of living, his priorities, his kingdom, just like he did for Simon Peter. The simple truth that he isn't finished with us wherever we've ended up. And I wonder, as Peter reflected on his own discipleship journey, did he return to this moment as he was writing 1 Peter and 2 Peter and in 1 Peter 2 too, and he writes these words like, newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Salvation is a growth process and it takes time. But because of the resurrection, Wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, we can participate in the life and mission of Christ if we can come to him and give him our hearts completely. I said it at the beginning. When we celebrate Easter Sunday, it's loud and it's bright and it's worth celebrating. But the hard reality of resurrection is that it brings life to dead places. And so sometimes we have to go to those places. Resurrection starts in the dark. You see, if it had just been enough for the disciples to hear the news secondhand, then Jesus needn't have bothered with all these interactions. But he knew they needed an encounter with the risen Jesus. And I wonder, how can we do that with our own lives? 
Jesus took the time with his disciples for this to become a reality in their own lives. He took Peter right back into the moment of his pain and his shame and he spoke directly to it. What are some of those moments for you that perhaps Jesus is inviting you to revisit because it's a dead place and he wants to bring resurrection life to it? And so Peter's reminded by the smell of a charcoal fire. Jesus needed him to go there so he could speak into it. And even though Peter's tried his hardest to move on, to ignore it, to push it down, to deny it, Jesus doesn't. He loves him too much to ignore it. He knows that his healing is about entering into those moments of pain, to enter into him with Jesus, the one who's making all things new. And maybe your pain and your dark place is not necessarily a shame-filled moment. Every year I'm reminded of that moment in my life, my moment of pain that I've had to allow Jesus into. I've had to learn to allow him to sit with me in and speak resurrection life into. Every year on the 12th of May, so just on Friday gone past, we remember our son who was stillborn and nine years ago we said hello and goodbye in the same breath. And so my moment of shame wasn't actually something I did, but grief has this strange way of making you think that you did. And I spent a lot of time feeling disqualified and I didn't know how to continue being part of what God was doing around me. Resurrection starts in the dark. I had to learn to listen to his invitation and to pay attention to what was going on in my own heart. One of my favorite quotes is from Barbara Brown Taylor. She says, resurrection is always announced with Easter lilies, the sound of trumpets, bright streaming light. But it did not happen that way. If it happened in a cave, it happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air. I let this sink in. New life starts in the dark. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And so here's the challenge to us. Here's where I get the prayer part in. Peter got to sit on a beach with Jesus to enjoy food with him and to look into his eyes and listen to his questions. We have to find that place for us. How can we allow the resurrected Jesus to sit with us in our most painful or shameful or fearful moments and let him speak to them? To listen to the questions, to allow him to draw our hearts back towards him. If we don't look for these moments, then resurrection will always just feel like a slightly unreal reality in our lives. And so how do we do it? How do we carve out those moments? Prayer is the invitation of Jesus to listen and learn to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Shame, fear, disappointment, grief, they cause us to hide. And often they cause us to count ourselves out. And Jesus is on the shoreline and he's looking for us to have breakfast with him so that he can remind us that he still believes in us and that he's calling us to follow him into all that he has for us. We're going to finish up. I'm just going to pray for us. I, do you want to, we want to sing or...
I just invite you to take a moment in the quiet. Jesus is on the shoreline and he's looking for us. And maybe you've unfinished business with Jesus. Maybe you know there's something that you've been holding and even busying yourself with other things because you aren't sure that Jesus has anything for you anymore. And it might be shame, but it, it could be many other things that have led you to discount yourself. And so just in the stillness, look to recognize that Jesus is here, that he's seeking you out. And yes, it might be a difficult conversation, but he wants to get to your heart. And he isn't going to go until he gets to it. He invites us to return to our first love. What does he want to say to you today? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome your grace and your mercy. We welcome your love. And in this present moment, we hear the question, do you love me more than? Because whatever it is, you aren't defined by that thing. You aren't defined by that moment. You aren't defined by the thing that someone else has said about you or done to you or that mistake that you carry with you every moment of every day. Return your heart to me. And so Jesus, help us to hear your invitation to follow you again and again and again to pick ourselves back up and to follow you. When we lose our way or we forget what it looks like or we just simply mess it up, you come again and you say, follow me, I still believe in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you believe in us, that you love us and you forgive us and you accept us, but more than that, you call us. So Lord, help us today to hear the call that you have put on each one of our lives. In Jesus' name.